Hello and welcome to the Starling Podcast, a podcast about how we built Starling Bank, a bank that is making banking better. I'm your host, Jason Maud. One problem for any growing organisation with its own software is the problem of legacy code. Is it possible to avoid legacy code developing, or is it inevitable? And if it does develop, how should you tackle it? That's the question we'll be answering today. And first, I'll let my guests introduce themselves. Hi, uh, my name is Martin Dow. Um, I lead what we call back office engineering, which is looking at uh, areas like finance and credit and data analytics um, for the bank. Hi, my name is Ricardo Avalos. I'm one of the engineers at Starling, and um, I've been working in different parts of the platform, and currently I'm looking after customer services integrations. Fantastic. Okay, so Starling has been developing code for about three and a half years now, both before and after we launched the bank publicly. So do we have legacy code? We probably have to start with the question of what, what legacy code is. I mean, it's um, it, it indicates that we've somehow lost control over this code. Maybe it's a question of, of who owns it, who's responsible. We don't necessarily know. I've heard different, different definitions of what legacy is. Um, um, I'll mention a few. Um, one is um, code that you didn't write yourself, that somehow you ended up... Um, that, that landed on you, that you have to modify. Um, uh, another definition is code that has no tests and therefore is very difficult to modify. Um, and um, another definition that I really like is code that has grown beyond your comprehension. Uh, and by, that, by, by those definitions, um, anyone who's joining Starling now who has to work on a code base that, be, that we've been actively changing for the last three years will be working on some legacy aspects of, of our code base. And I mean, to be honest, you could probably argue that, that a slightly extreme position that it's actually all legacy and it's probably legacy as soon as you write it and as soon as it ends up in production. Because to some extent, change, we know change is inevitable. Um, and the expectations um, of the code we write has also radically changed. So what technology is expected to do, what it, what, how, how the agility of the business, the agility of technology. We really have to write code that is available 24-7. There's no downtime, much more bespoke and tailored solutions. And with all of that, you can't really predict the future. So you can't continually plan for the future. Um, and at the same time, everyone is just learning day by day and learning more about the business, more about technology. So to some degree, you have no choice but to write code that will in some way not match tomorrow's requirements. And um, one, um, I would like to say one thing. Uh, we tend to speak in, speak about legacy as, as a negative thing. And um, most engineers who want to start in the industry writing code most people want to work on greenfield projects where it's very much like academic closed um, exercises where you control everything. And the reality is you will, you will come to a job where you will be working on an existing code base. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good training. Uh, there's a lot of knowledge. There's, there's a human, um, um, it's almost an instinct to immediately say, this thing that, I, that landed on me, I could have done it better. And it's very difficult and it, it can be overwhelming. But there is a lot of knowledge and a lot of value in legacy code. 
we've got to be aware of that not invented here syndrome that well if i haven't written it then i don't really want to get involved i don't want want to take responsibility for this i don't want to be the one to blame Mm, because that just results in endless rewriting of code Mm -hmm. yeah so we've got a situation where inevitably uh, code bases will grow uh, quite large and uh, no one will be able to have knowledge of the whole code base anymore and inevitably uh, future requirements or future technologies won't have been anticipated at the time the code was written. So how do we make sure that our code base can still be maintained, can still be uh, understood and that we don't fall into a position where uh, the code base has just got completely unmaintainable and has to sit on a box and not be touched i mean traditionally you would have said that that's a that's a role for architecture um for making some big upfront decisions that somehow um affect the the performance of the the the, the day-to-day decisions that engineers are making um and i suppose you'd say it's like what, what is architecture it's kind of the the boxes we draw on a whiteboard, perhaps, or the big technology choices we make, the language, the database, etc. Um, those big upfront decisions that we're making, they should, they should guide really the the create some consistency across the the, the solutions that individual developers are are, are building. I suppose. Um, um, so I, I'm old enough, not that old, but old enough to have been around when. Um, um, agile and extreme programming and all of these philosophies came along and one of the things that 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 was appealing to me was that you have to embrace change and change is something we uh, especially nowadays when you have all these different technologies languages tools frameworks all of this is changing all the time and at a faster pace than 20 years ago so the only thing we have for sure when, when we're designing systems today is that things are continuously changing and we can't we can't have a five-year roadmap. It will change. Things things will change underneath us that will, will make us rethink over and over the decisions that we're making. So you have to be very adaptable, very resilient to unknown unknowns. Yeah, and embrace it, but and, and embrace it as a whole organization. So, uh, I mean, we work for a business that is really culturally agile, not just in technology, but throughout. And in practice, that means that when we embark on a new piece of work or a new project, some new feature we want to add, we don't sit there up front and specify for three months exactly what it should do and how it should work and you know who's going to build it. We tend to start with a, a goal, something we want to achieve that's relatively loosely specified. And then we put together a small group of people, cross-functional, um, and we empower those people to make decisions um, and to change the system bit by bit to work towards that goal. And we're not expecting to make some big release in six months' time that will then suddenly switch on this feature. The feature evolves, and it's probably hidden from from customers. It's probably hidden behind feature flags, but it's gradually changing. And eventually, we reach a point where, actually, this is ready. Let's take the feature flag off and let's make it public. And that's probably, sometimes that's kind of uncomfortably early. It's a little bit earlier than you might otherwise, but you at least learn. And as you're, uh, uh, as you're building the system, the different members of the team are contributing and learning. So, you, so you, you, you specifically and consciously are not planning up front and allowing that to happen throughout. 
So key to what Martin is saying is is incremental changes. Uh, we do not, as Martin said, we do not spend months planning and then doing a big bang release. We we try to continuously add value by codifying, by actually coding, writing the software as we understand it today in small chunks that we can deliver to the business on a daily, weekly basis. And, and we protect uh, these new features from being exposed to, to our customers by using uh, toggle flags. Um, but we continuously, incrementally are tweaking our platform. Now, this sounds like, um, sounds great for uh, software engineers, but it sounds like a, a manager's nightmare. How do you, when you can't predict what's going to happen, you can't say, you know, it's going to take this long, or we're going to do this, or this is where we're going next. How on earth do you manage such a system? One thing certainly is to remove that divide between the business and the technology and engineering teams. That just has to be removed. And we talk a lot about cross-functional teams and about um, giving teams a goal that gives them a direction to move in, a goal to work towards, but allowing them to make the decisions as a group. And so that means if you've got um, you've got the head of some business unit sits next to an Android developer, sits next to platform developers, UX designers, product designers, and they are genuinely working together step by step, stage by stage. And that, I mean, it requires trust, right? It requires um, us all to trust that that process is going to produce the right result, but it also gives us in exchange the flexibility to change direction pretty rapidly. And so to not overinvest too early and to say, well, we've come this far and we've not got anything out of it yet, so we must push on through. You can say, well, we've, we've, we've delivered small steps towards our goal and actually pivoting that point is a much lower cost operation. Uh, one of the things I like about the way we work at Starling is we've, as Martin said, we've removed some of these barriers between the coders and the business. We we expect all of our engineers to be able to go and speak to the person who's requesting the change, be it um, finance or uh, fraud prevention or someone else. We, we, we have these direct contact to people and that's invaluable. And I think the feedback is much, much faster between, um, between the business and, and the engineers writing the functionality. Um, and I think that's, um, that's very helpful. So in theory, the evolutionary way we're approaching our architecture sounds great. It sounds like um, a, a brilliant way to gradually evolve and make sure that um, the uh, the nature of your code uh, is changed so that knowledge is kept up to date and so that you can adapt to new requirements. Um, in practice, however, how, how does it actually work? Uh, we're in a bank that is uh, has live and active customers how do we make sure that their data what they've done you know their history of their transactions or their payees doesn't get distorted or removed or lost as we are trying to continually change and update this uh, code in situ so we we decided we were going to use a traditional uh, relational database because we wanted um, some of the um, um, characteristics of them, like um, ACID uh, transactions. Um, um, that, in turn, has an effect on the way we operate. So we having a more um, um, structured database means that we can't just go and change the underlying data model easily. 
for example, you're talking about transactions and PEs and, and something specific to a data model. Um, and this, this, this ties in with incremental changes. If I, as a developer, need to change the data model, for example, let's say I want to add a new column to a table in a database, I can't just, a non-nullable column, that is, uh, I can't just go and, and make the change in one single go and make it happen in one release. Why? Because it might have some detrimental effect. Maybe by adding um, that column, I'm going to have, the database is going ha to have to add a default value to millions of rows in the database, thereby locking the table, thereby making the system uh, unresponsive for seconds, maybe even minutes, and that's unacceptable. So instead of doing that, we have to do a release. We have to, we have to plan our change in, the, in multiple steps. It will take probably three or four releases before I, before I get to the state where I want my table to be. Um, but that's fine, we can accomplish that. Um, and we're happy with the decision because we, we have the correctness provided by a very mature relational database. And like all, um, like all engineering decisions, it's about compromise. It's about um, figuring out what are your constraints, what are the, what are, what's important to you, um, and, and deciding what balance of those compromises is, is appropriate. And for us, as you say, we, we, as a bank, we wanted to ensure that we had some correctness and consistency. We had tools to really help us with correctness and consistency, but we have to pay a, a bit of a price with being very careful about how we migrate. But then again, we have we have transactions, so we're able to make uh, atomic changes to our data model. But applying those in small changes, of course, is always a bit of a challenge. Yeah, requires quite a bit of knowledge. Um, so speaking about knowledge. One of the factors that we um, mentioned at the top about how code can become legacy is losing knowledge about the code. So essentially the uh, understanding of what the code does and how it does it uh, gets lost over time as the uh, original developers either move on to other things or go and leave the company. So how do we make sure that knowledge about what a particular system does is maintained it is so that's something we're definitely um working through at the moment because uh, like any good developer there's an ingrained sort of skepticism i suppose about over documenting about documenting uh documenting badly what already is encoded in the software in the lines of code because invariably that sort of documentation drifts almost immediately um to be inconsistent, and you no longer know which of it has value and which which doesn't. Um, and ultimately, there's not really if there's six of you in a room working on a very small code base. Actually, there's not a great deal of benefit because you can communicate very easily um, between each other, and you're basically all working on the same kind of problem. So you just know. But as you grow beyond the old two pizza sizes, as we are well beyond now there becomes a need to figure out what needs documenting and what doesn't. And a lot of it um, in terms of architecture is about understanding the context within which those some of those decisions were made and understanding and accepting also that the context has obviously changed now and that if we were making the same decision today, it would be different. Um, Michael Nygaard talks a, talks a bit about um, architectural decision records, which are a sort of interesting approach where 
instead of defining some document that is the, the truth about how the architecture apparently is, instead it takes a more historical approach of saying when we make a decision which has an impact beyond my small code base, the bit of code that I'm currently working on, we make a record of that decision and we, re we record the context in which that decision is made, why we made it, some of the compromises, some of the things we, we decided not to, um, not to look into, for example. Um, and so it doesn't give you necessarily the full picture, but it gives you that historical context, which I think is really, really important. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm, um, um, we're, we're at an um, interesting time at Starling where uh, we're no longer 10 developers working on a small code base anymore. We're having a lot of people who are coming into a pretty big code base now. Um, and it used to be very easy to go and poke uh, the person sitting next to you and say, so how does this work? Um, and it, we didn't have to write heavyweight documents to, to understand the code base. Now we're um, with as many developers as we are, potentially seeing developers in different sites. Um, um, I don't have an answer as to how we're going to make it work. Um, do we need uh, um, more documentation in form of um, uh, heavyweight documents? Um, how is this? Communication is essential, basically. And, and um, I've seen um, companies in the past, I've worked for companies in the past where um, documentation inevitably, inevitably uh, falls out of sync with the code base and it's really hard to grasp and understand why some decisions were made in such a way and what Martin is saying uh, perhaps not everything needs documenting but uh, the major decisions when they happen need to live somewhere and they need to be available to the to the team well that's something I suppose we can continue to work through um yeah, I, I, like a lot of these things, it's, it's, it comes down to some to, to, to engineering culture, and as we're trying to make many more but much smaller steps, what's essential is to remove any bottlenecks, to remove uh, any big roadblocks to me writing a line of code with a very small cycle time, getting it into production as quickly as possible, and anything which is sort of centralised, top down architecture or documentation or some change review board will put a blocker, will, will slow that process down. Um, and if you slow it down, then the number of changes start to pile up. And as the changes pile up that have yet to be released in production, risk is increased. And in turn, it continues to, there's a, there's a cycle where it then all slows, slows down. So knowledge has to be pervasive within the culture of the company rather than specifically contained within a change control board or architectural team? I mean, you do need to create a, a culture that um, that assumes and accepts and, and values change. Um, and if you create that culture, you've got to be very careful that the documentation doesn't then lag behind. So like, uh, as you were also pushing decisions down delegating, give, empowering teams to make decisions, you also empower them to to write the documentation to support those decisions. Right? So um, moving on to a slightly different topic, um, microservices architecture has become a widely uh, adopted uh, pattern in the past few years. Um, is this style of architecture less susceptible to becoming legacy, do we think? 
Well, I mean, what's microservices, what's microservice architecture trying to do? It's 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 like going beyond those dimensions of do we have a horizontal split in our architecture um, across bands of technology, the view layer, the data layer, the service layer, etc., or a vertical breakdown where you say we'll break the problem down by um, in, in particular domains, and it tries to really encapsulate. Um, more independently deployable services hidden behind the abstraction of something like an API gateway. Um, and that has a lot of benefits in terms of, we, we see a lot of benefits in terms of the, the preventing, say, the cross-contamination of errors during incidents. Instead of having one big database and one big system, if an error, error in one part of the system doesn't end up causing an outage somewhere entirely unrelated. Um, Starling doesn't have an entirely um, microservices architecture. We don't have hundreds of uh, services running in production. We have uh, um, 30 or so. Um, so what's different about going for the 30 services rather than the hundreds and hundreds? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to step back a little bit again by saying that, uh, yes, microservices is, is something a lot of people are talking about. It's become the uh, the flavor of the month in terms of architectures if you if you attended qcon uh, everyone was talking about microservices uh, in fact one of the one of the talks that i enjoyed the most at qcon this year was not about microservices it was about creating music with functions written in closure and one of the things i really liked about this talk was the person giving the talk chris ford was his name said um every year that i that he attends QCon, uh, we as we as a community seem to be trying to solve the problems that we introduced last year by new uh, frameworks and architecture. So I'm trying to be uh, the devil advocate here with uh, microservices. I think there's a lot of a lot of really interesting concepts, um, but we also have to be very careful and think about what are we giving up, uh, what are we losing by moving on to the new flavor. So. I used to like working in a monolith because I was. I, I, it used to be very easy for me to stick a, an end, uh, a breakpoint somewhere and see the whole flow of the thing, and I could I could follow a request coming into the system, hit the database, and and send the response back. Now with microservices, I have no well. I can trace it, but it just becomes a lot more difficult. If this request is is then triggers multiple requests going to different services, going into different databases. So I've, I feel like I've lost something. You also don't need to run microservices to ensure good interface design, to ensure that your components are neatly decoupled. Um, you should also be thinking about good decoupling within a service. Um, sometimes I think that we introduce them because we're too worried about not trusting ourselves to break some of those boundaries within a system as well. I think uh, one of my favorite comments at QCon was that uh, microservice architecture has now become mature and the new innovation is doing microservices correctly. Uh, that was a, a brilliant comment. Okay, one final question to you both. Um, uh, many developers might be listening to this saying this all sounds fantastic but how am i going to explain it to my manager if my manager comes over and says you're just using a lot of fancy words for uh, not getting things right first time what would you advise the developer to say in response to that i mean i'd go back to 
to the the idea of agility and of the whole business being agile that that we we almost have no choice if that is the expectation that we have if we if we want to um, deliver products quickly and incrementally and ensure that we deliver the correct product in the end then we have to be thinking in terms of small steps and releasing into production in small steps and in order to do that you need to remove bottlenecks so we don't have room for this big upfront development for these big centralized control mechanisms um so i think that's probably one of the key points i'd make and obviously anyone who's done a little bit of software has been involved with software we know that um you don't just go and build the perfect platform and that's it you incrementally modify it you learn more about it you learn more about the domain the domain changes your technology stack changes so you're constantly going to learn more and make better decisions in the future than you did when you started writing something i mean i i challenge everyone who to go and look back at something they wrote a piece of software they wrote a year ago and they will definitely say um, i could have written this in a different way or maybe today with the knowledge that they have and the tools that they have they they would do it, they would do it differently i've always liked the idea that um if you don't look at your own code a year later and think that's rubbish then you haven't learned anything and i used to always think that was about you know technology i've i haven't learned a new technique that would allow me to do this better but but almost more relevant is that i didn't it couldn't have known what i was trying to achieve not the full extent of it because i didn't we hadn't as a as a business worked through What, what, where we were trying to end up, so there was so so much to learn, and I think you you alluded to earlier about about sort of trusting people of of um, hiring people that you trust to have done the best job at the time, given the information they had. So not um, taking this position of saying, well, if I had done it, I wouldn't have done it that way, because you really have to create that culture that again allows um, people to to learn and learn from their mistakes, to iterate and to improve. Um, yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much uh, both for that fascinating uh, discussion. Um, that's all we have time for in this episode. If you'd like to know more about Starling Bank, you can follow us on Twitter at Starling Bank and visit our website starlingbank.com. You can download the Starling Bank app from the iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store.